Hello, you are now in Cause Orbit, where interesting people from all walks of life are interviewed as to who they are, what they do, and how they do it. Well, we're honored and pleased to have as our guest Father Robert Spitzer, S-P-I-T-Z-E-R. He's a Jesuit priest, theologian, philosopher, educator, author, speaker, and he's retired president from Gonzaga University. He's a founder and president of the Magis Center of Reason and Faith, and uh, he's president of Spitzer Center for Ethical Leadership. He's also the host of the EWTN TV program, Father Spitzer's Universe. Our topic is the relationship between science and religion, and uh, we'd... Uh, uh, like to speak to that topic by mentioning the fact that uh, Father Spitzer has written a book entitled Science at the Doorstep to God. And uh, we'll be uh, uh, going through the interview relating to the book and information that relates to that topic. Uh, welcome to Carl's Obit, Father Spitzer. It's great to be with you, Carl. I really appreciate the opportunity. Oh, well, thank you. And uh, uh, let me ask you a question then uh, to begin sure. with. Sure. To begin with, uh, how can science and religion be compatible? Well, of course, science and religion use two different methodologies, uh, and they're oriented to, to two different bodies of knowledge. So what science wants to do is it uses what we call an empirical mathematical method. So in other words, they use empirical observations and they combine it with mathematics and measurements of mathematics. And, and they, their objective is to try and get to um, an objective of physical description of our universe. Um, so, and not just a description, but also an explanation of our universe and um, anything, of course, that is attached to it that can be discovered through that scientific methodology. Uh, science can tell us the how of nature. How does it work? Um, you know, what is it constituted by? How is it, you know, divided? How might we understand it better? But the focus is on nature and the how of nature. Religion, on the other hand, is um, has a very different method. It begins with what we call revealed truths. So these would be truths that came from the prophets of the Old Testament. It also could be truths that, um, of course, come from Jesus Christ and uh, from you know the time of Jesus, what we call the apostolic era. And so these are revealed truths. And then... Um, what we try to do um, with that method is we try to understand, as Pope Pius XII put it, sacred truths necessary for salvation. So the objective of revealed truth is, well, how do you get to heaven? Who is God? And of course, what does God expect of us? And how might we, uh, as I say, move toward heaven and away from hell um, is um, the objective. And so we might say that um, Instead of talking about the how of nature, um, religion talks about the why. What's going on in God's mind? 
why did God create nature as we know it? Why did he create human beings with a soul as we know it? And and so forth. So, you know, we've got two different methods with two different objectives. If we keep them separated from one another, that is to say, we don't make science do um, uh, revealed truth and salvation, and we don't make revealed truth and theology do science, we get a very complementary relationship between science and religion. And so we can see that uh, each method does their own thing, they get their own objective, but we get remarkable confluences. For example, uh, in this new book, uh, Science at the Doorstep to God, I talk about near-death experiences. And in those near-death experiences, we can actually get peer-reviewed medical evidence that shows that we have a transphysical soul that will survive bodily death. Even the New York Academy of Sciences, Mm. right? This is a highly prestigious organization. Last year in 2022 uh, indicated in their own proceedings that there's a very credible possibility that your consciousness will survive bodily death and it will not just remain in this world, but will go to, um, uh, you know, on a journey to various kinds of domains. So that, um, you know, when that comes out of a peer-reviewed journal and there's evidence for the Samuel Parnia study in 2014 at the University of Southampton, simply excellent study. Over 10 authors um, that were, uh, you know, looking at this and examining this yeah. uh, for the peer-reviewed journal resuscitation. Excellent. And, of course, the Pim von Lommel study uh, that was done for the Lancet, Britain's number one medical journal. Uh, All of these are very, very excellent studies, but there is a huge amount of veridical data for this. In other words, verifiable data after the fact. Or patients who are flat EEG, fixed and dilated pupils, no gag reflux. A flat EEG means there's no electrical activity going on in the cerebral and and frontal cortices, right? There's no electrical activity in the visual and auditory lobes. I mean, the person is reduced to a few sputterings of neurons in the lower brain, nothing else. They can't think, they can't see, they can't hear. And during this time, absolutely provable, they are reporting what was going on, not just in the operating room, but what was going on outside the hospital, A train is passing by through the snow, going into a a grove of trees, reported by Bradley Burroughs, a blind boy, a 16-year-old blind boy who was blind from birth, you know, and he's giving a perfect description of what's going on outside the hospital or from the roof of the hospital. One lady is, you know, um, is actually looking, she's hovering outside the hospital near the third floor. And she's, while well, she's kind of hovering up there, uh, she sees a tennis shoe, um, you know, on this ledge that, you know, probably was, you know, dropped by a construction worker, you know, 25 years ago when the hospital was built with a worn left toe and a shoelace sticking under the heel. She comes back and she says, you know, right outside, you know, the third floor ledge there, there's, um, there's a tennis shoe out there. And, of course, there's one researcher actually crawled out on the ledge and saw the tennis shoe there exactly as as uh, indicated. I mean, how could she possibly know? So all these things, uh, to be honest with you, are um, really a very, very interesting vertical data. There's just hundreds of cases, um, this vertical verifiable data after the fact, 
Um, that's reported 100% accurately. And by the way, 80% of blind people see. Most of them see for the first time when they're clinically dead. Oh. In other words, this Bradley Burroughs, for example, uh, he, as I said, he's a 16-year-old blind boy, never saw a thing in his life. He uh, has, you know, he's clinically dead. He has this heart attack. He's sitting on the, um, the operating room table and zooms right outside the hospital. As he's, uh, you know, outside the hospital, he says, you know, I saw the snow for the first time in my life. I wonder, you know, the color white's like, and I saw the green trees way out in the distance there to the right. And, and sure enough, this train comes by and a train, in fact, did come by the hospital. All trains have timetables. And so, of course, he says on the back of that train had a big sign on it with an arrow pointing to the right. And sure enough, that train goes right down the tracks and goes into this grove of trees off to the right. And that's exactly what happened outside of the hospital. Now, how did, first of all, Bradley know this outside the hospital? But more importantly, since a blind person has no visual images in their physical brain to hallucinate, how are you going to explain this, uh, you know, with a, a hallucination theory? Or some other physicalist hypothesis, yeah, right? Yeah. You're not. So I mean, it's it's getting really, really good evidence. The new cosmological evidence from science for our creation um, of the universe by intelligent creator is also equally interesting. I was just a about lot to ask of you. new developments here. Paul, yeah. I was just about to ask you about the cosmological yeah. Uh, evidence. Oh yeah. And teleological and ontological, that kind of thing. The classical uh, yeah. evidences, I suppose you'd say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, science basically has really updated this hugely. Ah. So they, they do it from two vantage points. Now, for a long time, you know, um, when uh, we thought that the universe started with the Big Bang, which it may well have, um, you know, uh, of course, you know, 13.8 billion years ago being the, uh, the, the limit to um, uh, physical time going backwards, all of a sudden, you know, that looked like a pretty daunting thing. However, um, they postulated a multiverse in which, of course, the multiverse would be a super universe that's just kind of pumping out all these little bubble universes, yeah. uh, trillions of them, one of which is our own. And so, well, you know, the multiverse conceivably could go back infinitely in time. And so, of course, you could think, well, maybe maybe it is eternal and and maybe there there wasn't a creation. However, all that has changed just in the last, I'd say, six to seven years. There's this problem of Boltzmann brains, um, which essentially means that if there really were an infinite multiverse, all of us would be Boltzmann brains. That is to say, brains that just fluctuated into existence in a thermal vacuum. Because the odds, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, literally, uh, you know, that's all we are. We don't live in a big, huge um, uh, organic universe with, uh, you know, trillions upon trillions of light years. We're, we're just, you know, fluctuating into existence in a thermal vacuum with our brains fully loaded of memories of being in an organic universe like ours. Now, you look at that and you go, that's ridiculous. But, you, you know, the odds of you being a Boltzmann brain instead of a, uh, um, living in this universe, in this organic universe, are 10 raised to the 10 raised to the 56 higher. That's almost, you know, a flat out, yeah. it, it, you know, impossibility that you could be anything other than a Boltzmann brain. 
It's so much higher yeah. than, you know, living in our organic universe. Physicists said, ah, we don't think uh, the multiverse is that, uh, uh, an infinite multiverse is that, um, you know, plausible a hy- uh, hypothesis. Uh, you're going to have to come up with something else because we, we don't want to consider ourselves Boltzmann brains. So that was one of, that's, you know, that was when the, the whole thing began to uncap. Then, of course, Thomas Banks came out and just uh, all, you know, dis- showed the improbability of eternal inflation, which that's what would give rise to an infinite multiverse. And so he, he wrote an article for Sean Carroll's website just called um, Why I Don't Like Eternal Inflation. Oh, that was another arrow. And, and then Stephen Hawking, of all people, yeah. when I debated him in, on the Larry King Show in 2010, oh, really? oh. he was definitely on the side of, you know, we don't know whether our universe needs a creator. Probably it doesn't. Now, in 2018, when he writes his last article in the Journal of High Energy Physics, he changes his mind completely. And he starts saying things like, well, you know, um, our universe could not have come from, um, you know, a fractal multiverse or from an eternally inflating condition. Yeah, and yeah. he g- gives a lot of important reasons for it from gravitational wave perturbation. But it wasn't just he. He's joined by his Belgian co- um, um, colleague, um, uh, Thomas Hertog. So Hawking and Hertog published this thing, basically an article called A Smooth Exit from Eternal Inflation where he begins to say all inflating conditions must have a beginning. And if they have a beginning, well, you don't have an infinite multiverse. And if you don't have an infinite multiverse, then, of course, we can't explain all the fine-tuning coincidences for life in the universe except by basically a really smart uh, creator that can create something out of nothing. Now, I leaped over about 10 steps but if uh, you read that book, Science at the Doorstep to God, just read chapters one and two of that book, and you will see that evidence writ large. And you can see that, it, you know, if Hawking's right and Hertog's right and, and Banks is right and the Boltzmann brain theory is right and a bunch of other physicists are right, basically uh, even a multiverse is going to have to have a beginning. Every inflating condition is going to have to have a beginning. And furthermore, there's only going to be, as, as Hawking put it, a very small number of bubble universes, if indeed there's any multiverse at all. So he comes out and makes that very explicit. And then if there's a small number of bu- bubble universes, how are you going to explain, for example, the low entropy of our universe? Remember, low entropy is high order. If you're going to have a life form developed by, you know, uh, in our universe, you're going to need super low entropy, super high order in our universe. But the odds against our low entropy in our universe happening is 10 raised to the 10 raised to the 123 to 1 against. That's the same odds as a monkey typing the entire corpus of Shakespeare by random tapping of the keys perfectly in a single try. I can't uh, even I don't do think that. so. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So if, if, if you're not willing to go with the monkey deal here, you're pretty much backed against the wall. If Hawking is right about a small number of bubble universes, there's going to have to be a very intelligent creator, something that can not only put in all the initial conditions for low entropy, but all of the other very, very, you know, minimalistically probable 
I'm talking almost infinitesimally improbable fine-tuning coincidences that are needed for our universe uh, to have life. So that's just, again, that's a second whole arena that is just now bursting forth. So I thought, I got to write this book. Wow. Because, you know, the, the new evidence is just so overwhelming. And that's, that's, that's you know, just two, um, two little uh, points out of many other points. It seems that we're skipping all over the place just to uh, yeah. to show that there's no divine creator. And we're coming up with all kinds of reasons from all perspectives and uh, uh, yeah. not really knowing which one to use. <laughs> well, that's well, you know, as I always say, when you have to bend over backwards and do triple somersaults backwards in order to show that there isn't a creator, I'll just let everybody draw their own conclusions. Yeah. Are you kidding me? You're actually going to hypothesis, hypothesize that something which is 10 raised to the 10 raised to the 123 uh, to 1 against, that that actually occurred so that in a small number of bubble universes so that your hypothesis can be correct? If that's what you want to believe, I got a bridge to sell you. I got a million bridges to sell you because, you know, as, as Thomas Banks or as as Stephen Hawking would say, that's just flat out almost impossible. So, I mean, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, again, life is really weird in our universe. And it's either going to take a whole lot of bubble universes, which we don't seem to be able to avail ourselves of anymore, or um, basically there's a really intelligent creator that designed it. And now I'll just leave, you, you know, with, you know, the this fine-tuning area just with, uh, you know, Fred Hoyle's thing. He he basically, um, Fred Hoyle used to be the atheistic gadfly, you know, yeah. in the scientific community. Well, he changed his mind, uh, you know, um, way back in about 2012. And, uh, you know, now with all the evidence that's come out since 2018, I know he would, yeah, you know, yeah. double his uh, conclusion. But here's what he said. I, I do not think that there are any blind forces worth thinking about. Yeah. It seems to me that the odds against having an abundance of carbon in our universe by pure chance is virtually impossible. There must, therefore, be some supercalculating, super intellect that has monkeyed with the constants of physics and those of chemistry and biology as well. I consider this conclusion to be beyond, uh, uh, you know, the, the shadow of a doubt. Now, you look at that and you go, that was the atheistic gadfly? Wow, did he have a conversion. And the conversion came when his partner, William Fowler, told him the odds against having um, the perfect uh, resonance levels required, um, you know, for an abundance of carbon in the universe. He said, uh, at the end of it, uh, Hoyle said, you know, the odds of having our abundance of carbon needed for life forms, right? The abundance of carbon in our universe um, is the same as a tornado sweeping through a junkyard, assembling a Boeing 747 ready for flight. Mm. In other words, highly improbable. And, of course, that really convinced him. And uh, I don't have to tell you that a lot of other cosmologists have now jumped on the bandwagon with uh, Fred Hoyle. In fact, today, if you want to see real compatibility with faith and science, just look at the number of scientists today who declare themselves to be believers in God or a higher transcendent power. 
51% of scientists, according to the last Pew survey of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, so that'd be 51%, that's still a majority as far as I know, declare themselves to be believers in God or a higher transcendent power. 21% declare themselves to be agnostics, that means don't know, and 20% declare themselves to be atheists. So let me see here, 51% uh, theist versus 20% atheist. Uh, decidedly, the scientists are pro-God, not anti-God. But the really interesting statistic, Carl, is the young scientists who are 35 years of age or younger. Ah. They are 66%. That's a super majority. Ah. 66% declare themselves to be believers in God and the higher transcendent power. 15% agnostic and 15% atheist. All I can say is it's definitely shifting. And, you know, toward theism, toward belief in God, toward an intelligent creator. And you got to ask, well, why? Because all of the physical evidence, the cosmological evidence, even Stephen Hawking is joining, even Richard Dawkins, the God delusion of God delusion really? thing. Even Dawkins has said, well, you know, I'm no longer an atheist. I'm an agnostic because my curiosity has now trumped my skepticism. Well, that's very fine of you to say 25 years after you started this uh, kind of hysteria out there. But anyway, I mean, there's a shift. And why is there a shift? Because the cosmological evidence is shifting toward God. The, the, uh, uh, that is to say, the fine-tuning evidence, the, the evidence for a beginning is shifting toward God. <laughs> you might ask yourself, why do 76% of doctors, 76%, over three-quarters of doctors, believe in God or a higher transcendent power? And two-thirds of those doctors practice um, their faith at least moderately. And you got to ask yourself the question, well, why would they do that? And the, the answer to that question is, well, near-death experiences, the stuff we were just talking about. Another phenomenon which we didn't talk about um, uh, called um, uh, terminal lucidity and yet another one, intelligence and hydrocephalic patients. All of these um, um, areas are showing uh, a soul, uh, a transphysical soul that can survive bodily death with good peer-reviewed medical standards. So if you start looking at this, is that convincing doctors? Yes, it's convincing doctors, but more importantly, in the late uh, um, 20th century and in the 21st century, there has just been a plethora, a huge number of scientifically inexplicable miracles. And that has really changed. In fact, a lot of doctors admit that the reason that they are now believing in God and practicing religion is because they have seen miracles in their own ah, practice, ah, okay. naturalistically inexplicable. And okay. so, um, yeah, you might, uh, by the way, there's another poll that, uh, survey that was done by HET Research, and the Finkel Science Institute showed that 74% of doctors believe in miracles past and present. Okay. So just to let you know, um, I mean, things have shifted in the professional scientific groups, even though among our young people, unfortunately, that is still not yet the case. But 
you know, we're, Lodge Centers where I work, and, and that's where we're trying to turn that percentage around every single day. Oh, Father, let me ask you this. Uh, also, sure. too, uh, I, I guess you, uh, to a certain extent, could consider the whole area now of quantum physics as it might fit into what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, the because whole uh, a lot of strange yeah. occurrences seem to oh, yeah. be noticed uh, as we look closer and closer into how how nature works. Oh yeah, and in fact, there there are many many people, uh, even you know, uh, people who were tremendously skeptical uh, even ten fifteen years ago because of the new research in quantum physics. Uh, have begun to turn around uh, and become theistic as well. I mean, two of the big uh, areas that you know really are are very very baffling um, is the first area is that the universe doesn't seem. We, we used to think that mass was the most fundamental particle. You know, so that if you got down to the most fundamental um, particle, you would be pretty much at the base of nature. So if you could just you know, get more uh, fundamental than protons, you could get to quarks, then you get to more fundamental constituents of quarks. Eventually, once you get to the most simple particles, you'd be there. But nobody thinks that anymore. No. Everybody thinks, of, in light of quantum mechanics, that nature is kind of more, if I can say, mind-like than it is matter-like. And there are many reasons for it, not the least of which, of course, are, um, you know, a series of, um, you know, uh, paradoxes that have been elucidated. Uh, you know, I won't go into all the technicalities of them, uh, but basically these paradoxes show that matter um, can manifest itself as both a particle and a wave. So it can be wave-like and particle-like at the same time. Yeah, yeah. But more than that, it actually um, uh, can... Uh, operate at distances which are physically impossible and not only that but whole systems react to a data simultaneously and not just the part of the system that's next door uh, to it I mean it's the whole system like a whole cell reacts at the same time well, in a quantum system you introduce data the whole quantum system no matter how big that system is it could be a light year across 20 light years across and it would all interact simultaneously as a system not go to the point next door to the point next door to the point next door like we think of in you know in terms of locomotion so when you really look at it you think well wait a minute here I mean, what is all this? Is is matter, uh, you know, uh, mind-like or is matter matter-like? And it looks like matter is mind-like. And, uh, you know, uh, Thomas Nagel, um, you know, real classical skeptic guy, uh, finally writes this book, and he, it's called um, Mind and Cosmos, huh. Why the Neo-Darwinian um, uh, Approach uh, to uh, Evolution, um, a materialistic approach to evolution is almost certainly wrong. Hmm. So you look at that and you go, well, why is that? And of course, as he says, um, they're just phenomena that cannot be explained materialistically. And the numbers don't play out. Too many things would have to happen uh, in order for us to get the order of our universe today in a very short amount of time. 4.6 billion years is almost yeah. impossible. Father, so, let me ask anyway. you something. Let me sure. ask you something, Father. Uh, uh, yeah. Talking about the idea that you just mentioned in terms of of uh, matter seeming to have uh, a mind, would that be uh, 
the Creator God allowing us to maybe have some kind of uh, uh, tapping or some kind of understanding uh, of uh, uh, God's mind? Well, of course, his objective in doing this, as we begin to, um, you know, um, uh, you know, look at all of the data that we have, you know, you know, violations of the bell inequality are, are, first of all, so problematic. You cannot explain that with a traditional matter theory. So, of course, we've had to kind of go to more mind-like theories of nature. Um, and in fact, that mind is more fundamental to nature than the materialistic components of it. Hmm. Now, there were these guys like Alfred North Whitehead who, uh, you know, believed this early on. Uh, you know, he's just a philosopher at Harvard who believed it uh, early on. And and uh, uh, his one of his great protégés, um, uh, Paul Weiss, was my dissertation director. But the main thing is that a lot of people already saw this mind-like component. Today, the, the evidence for it's overwhelming. But you ask the question, why would God do this? I think what he's doing is he's trying to lead these scientists. He's trying to, you know, especially the skeptical ones like, uh, I don't think you've got the full description with a physicalist or a deterministically physicalist explanation. I think God is basically producing so many paradoxes and so much evidence of mind likeness that, of course, it's going to have to point ultimately to mind itself, yeah. not just partial manifestations of mind but to mind itself, and that is like pointing to God. Yeah. So he is giving that kind of um, evidence, yes. Now, Father, suppose uh, somebody came to me who was an atheist and asked the mm -hmm. question, uh, um, how would you direct me to information that would show that uh, God exists? How, how, how could I direct him? How, how do you think uh, mm -hmm. an ordinary person who doesn't have all background that, that you're speaking from be able to do that? How, how would that direction yeah. be made? Well, uh, if I might do a shameless bit of advertising here, the first thing I do <laughs> is I give them my book, Science at the Doorstep to God, because it's written precisely for that kind of person. I didn't write it so that it would be impossible to read, but rather that an intelligent person, you'd, you'd have to have a little bit of preparation, um, you know, know some scientific methodology and so forth. But if you had that preparation, the first thing you would say after you read it is, you're kidding me. And the answer is, no, I'm not kidding you. This is what Hawking is saying. This is what Hertog is saying. This is what the best studies from the New York Academy of Sciences are saying about near-death experiences. Here's what uh, you know Rudolf Townsy and his colleagues at Harvard are saying about terminal lucidity, et cetera, et cetera. I just say, first of all, I give them the data in a book. If they just go, well, that's too tough. Uh, if, again, if I could just do some shameless effort, because I spend my life doing this, I'd send them to a vid the videos. We have a bunch of free videos ah. on our website called majacenter.com. Okay. So just go to that website, go to free resources, and then look up scholarly articles and um, videos. But if the scholarly articles are too tough, just go to the other free resources, the blog resources and also the popular videos and articles that don't have all the big words and stuff in it. You can get the general gist. So there's something for everybody there. 
And if you go to that majacenter.com and you've got a kid who is basically from about seventh grade all the way to 12th grade, and he's pretty much saying, I don't believe anything. You know, science is right and faith is wrong, and I won't believe that they're compatible. Just send them to the essential modules. So go to majacenter.com. Go to the essential Find, you just put in essential modules in the search thing and you will find the seven essential modules. Just, you know, it's only 35 minutes for each video. Mm. Just, you know, just click on that thing. We, we divide it into little, you know, six minute segments so that, you know, people with, mm. you know, a shorter attention span can kind of gulp it down and think about it. But, you know, um, you know, because if you're not used to this, you'll probably want the shorter video. So, but just click on that. And if I tell you, by the time you get through, not just the cosmological evidence, the quantum evidence and the near-death experience evidence, um, but when you get to um, the whole area of the Shroud of Turin and the scientific investigation of it, and then you get into uh, the Eucharistic miracles and the scientific investigation of it. Ah. By the time you're finished with those seven essential modules, if you are not utterly convinced, I would be surprised, unless you just had a closed mind and weren't going to believe it to begin with. So in other words, if you just say, I don't want to... Re- be responsible to a moral agency outside of myself, and I don't want any religion, I don't want to believe in a church, I don't want to believe in the real presence of the Eucharist, fine. I'm not going to be able to convince you. Uh, you're a free person. You choose. But if you have even an open mind to the evidence, I think I can bring you to a very, very probative conclusion that not only does God and, the, and your immortal soul exist and the afterlife exist, but Jesus Christ um, he's really risen from the dead, and his Eucharist is really his own body and blood. Yeah. So that's my, you know, so just take a look at um, the essential modules on modulecenter.com. I guess also, Paul, you can direct them to your TV program, uh, Father Smith's oh, yeah. Universe on EWTN. Oh, yeah. oh, constantly talking about this, and as I always tell people, I'm the only priest I know with my own universe. So, you know, come joining, <laughs> come join me in the universe there with our good co-host, Doug Keck, who's a really smart guy. And so um, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, we've been talking to uh, our guest. Uh, that would be Father Robert Spitzer, S-P-I-T-Z-E-R. Uh, he's a Jesuit priest. And uh, we've been uh, talking about the uh, area of... Uh, the relationship between science and religion. And uh, thank you, Father, for giving us that information. And uh, I'd like uh, our viewers at least to tap into the areas of information that you had just mentioned, all those resources. That'd be quite interesting, I'm sure. Well, thank you. And I'm glad for allowing um, Spitzer's Universe to go into Carl's orbit. So uh, I'm uh, very, very pleased. So thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, and now I'd like to say also a thank you to all our listeners, and we invite you again to tune in to Carl's Orbit.